Hi, this is Karim Khan with the BJSM podcast, and it's a great pleasure and very exciting to have the four authors of the recent New England Journal paper on ACL tears uh, with us on this podcast. So I'm going to begin by saying hi to the authors, uh, Richard Frobel. Hi, Richard. Hi, Karim. Harold Ruse. Hello. Eva Ruse. Hello. And then Stefan Lamanda. Hi, Karim. Thanks so much, and listeners will hear from each of you, obviously, and three of you are in Sweden, and uh, Eva is in southern Denmark now. So I'm just going to jump straight in and congratulate you, obviously, and uh, I'm going to assume that our listeners know about this paper um, entitled Randomized Trial of Treatment of ACL Tears. And uh, Richard, tell us about uh, when you started on this project and how long you've been working to get this paper into the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, that's that's a fairly long story, but I'll keep it short. Uh, I started in 2000, 2001 uh, when I attended a surgical procedure with Harald, uh, where we actually found that the ACL had uh, grown into the PCL and created stability of the knee. And then Harald told me that Stefan and Harald had designed an RCT uh, about comparing surgical and non-surgical strategies for ACL injuries. And so uh, they invited me to to start that work, and we kept on for one year uh, designing the study. And in 2002, we started. Uh, Recruitment ended in 2006, and then the two-year follow-up was concluded in 2008. So it's been a a long and curvy road. Now, congratulations. That's a tremendous uh, credit to you and uh, the team, and I know that this is a team effort. So... um, I'm going to move to Eva straight away to give uh, her a chance to ask her how she was sort of so patient um, to have a PhD student who ostensibly you know, wasn't getting finished in, uh, well, it took four years to recruit participants and uh, you know, still wasn't finished when he defended his uh, PhD. Well, we were all three supervisors, Richard, and uh, the plan was actually not to include the RCT report in his PhD. So he actually defended his PhD uh, prior to the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. So that yeah, was so fine. <laughs> you're happy with that. And uh, Eva, while you're there, um, tell us about the sort of discussions when the four of you were deciding, um, and also Jonas Runstam, of course, the five of you, were discussing which journal um, you were going to submit this to, because the BJSM must have been high on the list as well. (laughs) Actually, I think that um, we were all considering uh, New England right at the start when we uh, were discussing the study from the beginning. So this has actually been our goal for the last 10 years. Good for you. No, fantastic. And so... um, Harold, you were saying that uh, in our little chat before we got online that um, you were involved in the study design and uh, obviously surgeries. Tell us um, how surgeons broadly have, have thought that you know ACL should be managed before this study came out. Well, I, I think it's, it's a little bit different to where we are in the world. Uh, but uh, uh, in Sweden, uh, there's been a strategy that... Uh, about 50% of the ACL tears that were diagnosed uh, they went to to surgery, and uh, and that was because uh, um, the, the the people thought that uh, 
if if they had surgery, uh, the patient had surgery, they could go back to their previous activity level and maybe also prevent uh, later osteoarthritis or or secondary meniscus tears. Uh, so uh, I think uh, maybe in the in other countries, maybe in the USA, uh, there are even more uh, or higher percentage of uh, the diagnosed ACL tears that are that uh, that will have surgery from the beginning. So um, and, and another I think uh, important factor uh, when we thought about this was that there was a study uh, from Lund with uh, primary conservative treatment that had pretty good results. Uh, that uh, and there are papers published uh, from from that study. Uh, now from Kostiganis and, and from uh, Paul Neumann, and uh, uh, we knew that that strategy could be good, at least in the in the longer perspective. So uh, uh, we 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 thought that uh, it, it was very important to to study even the the more non-operatively uh, part of the of the treatment from the beginning. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, so I'll give um, Richard a chance to sort of talk about that issue, um, this decision about randomizing people who traditionally might have advocated for, um, opted for surgery um, in a study. So you're designing the study and you're thinking, you know, can we really randomize people who may be thinking, look, I want to have an operation to conservative management. How did, how did that go? What was the, the thinking there and how did you actually go with the patients in terms of getting them to agree to be in the study, Richard? Uh, I think that's that's a very big issue, uh, and of course, uh, one one of the reasons for our success, I would guess, is the extensive information that we provided to all the patients, uh, where we uh, really tried to tell the patients about the scientific evidence behind the treatment options that they were facing. So what we did was that all patients got oral information, uh, they got written information, and we also pre-recorded a DVD uh, containing uh, information about rehabilitation, about surgery, and also where there was a panel discussion between three of the surgeons, also the surgeons uh, operating the patients in the study, where they uh, discussed pros and cons about the respective treatment strategy. So, so basically, I think the information part was extremely important for the success of the of the study. Wow, that's uh, that's that's substantial for you. I didn't realize that. So, uh, why don't we get Stefan um, to tell us a bit more about that information? Because clearly, it's difficult um, to decide what to put in and how to balance those things. And uh, just if you could share that information that's provided, that will be helpful. Well, as, uh, as uh, Richard pointed out, uh, we had extensive discussions on this uh, aspect uh, in the planning of the study, and uh, of course, the background to to our own uh, to our own equipoise in this matter uh, was that uh, we had uh, been working in this area for uh, for many years and uh, reviewing the literature and in our own work. Uh, we came to realize that there really wasn't any good published evidence to uh, argue for the superiority of uh, either a non-operative or operative treatment of uh, these injuries. So I think we can we can honestly say that uh, 
we at least in the study group had a pretty good equipoise uh, to start with and then the challenge was of course to uh, convince the uh, the uh, study participants and I might also argue the participating surgeons that uh, it was fair to uh, to uh, agree on an equipoise uh, in in this area and that there was no really strong evidence uh, that uh, surgery would be able to prevent uh, future development of osteoarthritis uh, in the longer perspective and also which I think was the more challenging uh, challenging issue to convince them that uh, not even in the short term was there any strong published evidence to suggest uh, either way. Yeah, that was the tough part, eh? the, uh, getting them to agree that to do that. So I know there were four surgeons um, in the study. Um, so two of you sound like you're on site pretty much straight away. The other two took a bit of time, you're suggesting, Stefan, to sort of think that uh, the evidence well, all one way. Well, I think that uh, it, this was, uh, I think, the uh, the result of uh, our discussions and our contacts, uh, mainly through Harold and uh, Richard, with these surgeons and uh, providing them with information that convinced them that. Uh, uh, this was actually uh, ethical uh, to do this kind of randomization and we had of course also at that time uh, the approval of the, uh, the uh, ethics committee, regional ethics committee here in Sweden. So I think we, we had a good, uh, good set of arguments uh, in these discussions uh, both with the patients and uh, with the participating surgeons. Okay. Thank you. And uh, let's jump on the clinical implications now. You've, you've done fantastic you know, 10 years of hard work and part of our job at BJSM is to share these messages. So if we go to Eva, um, you've got a, a lot of physiotherapists will be listening to this podcast. So what do you say to them about this study? Um, I would say to them that it is possible to perform top class uh, research that includes exercise as treatment and there are multiple problems with doing so and one of them is how you uh, how you set up your exercise program and in this study we worked with goals that you had to achieve prior to moving on to the next step as compared to doing a predefined set of whatever uh, and I think that was a very um, useful approach that worked very well because this way we could individualize the exercise to each individual patient. So I think that was one uh, one way why we succeeded in in keeping one standardized program for all the patients. Yeah, I've got it. So uh, it's always this challenge between the recipe, as uh, Jill Cook calls it, and, and customising your your program as an excellent expert physio. Um, why don't you just hit us with a couple of the key goals, like the couple of landmarks, so um, that you like to use in the rehab period? 
Well, the goals that we did did use was that they were set up with regards to range of motion, where we, after four weeks, expected full extension and flexion of more than 120 degrees. And um, from week five and on, we expected uh, full extension and flexion comparable to the other side. And when it comes to a muscle function, we expected full quadriceps control in sitting and standing within the first month. And uh, we expected after 16 weeks, if you did not have uh, surgery, that you would have less than 10% difference in quadriceps and hamstring strength between legs. And in the surgical group, we had the same expectation, but not until 24 weeks, because we know it takes a bit longer to recover after surgery uh, compared to when you have not had surgery. And we also had, in a similar way, goals when it comes to uh, swelling and walking and activities. Yeah, oh, that's great. And what's the easiest way for a listener to, to track down your protocol? Actually, it is in the appendix uh, given uh, with a paper at the Na uh, New England webpage. So that's helpful for the, the protocol um, and the rehab. Now, if we move to the people who failed conservative management uh, for a bit, the decision about failure, and we'll ask uh, you know, whoever wants to jump in here, both um, on the physio side with Richard and Eva, and then obviously the surgical side. So some of the patients did need to be reoperated on from the conservative group. Um, and uh, Richard, why don't you... Um, just open this up by saying, you know, telling a bit about those patients and how you decided whether they should, you know, consult the surgeons. And then obviously we'll hear from Harold and Stefan. But uh, Richard, tell us about people who, who failed the conservative rehab protocol. Uh, either at a planned follow-up or at a scheduled uh, appointment um, at the orthopedic department. The, the patient would would say or state that uh, he or she has an instability of the knee that uh, adheres to the ACL. So uh, basically a rotational instability that is bothering them, either, either having a, a full giveaway episode or an almost giveaway episode. So uh, if they had, if the, if the patient reported instability of the knee and, of course, ful fulfilled the criteria for surgery being a positive pivot shift, uh, then the patient was offered surgery as an option. Okay. And um, how did that usually go? What, what was their response to the offer? Uh, in most cases, the patients uh, decided to have an operation but not in all cases. And in some case, cases, the, the patient said, well, this was not, this is not so bad, I'll just wait. And then they could come back and have, and have, have the same discussion again a month later. Okay. And I'll ask Harold, uh, what do you want to add to that comment? That, that yes, I, uh, I think uh, that was uh, in every case, uh, I think, uh, also a discussion between Richard and me. And I think uh, uh, in every case before uh, the patient was uh, finally offered the surgical procedure, 
Richard and I uh, agreed uh, and, and had a consensus about that, that uh, we thought both of us in the, both our perspectives, uh, from the physio perspective and from the surgical perspective, that this was uh, a surgical case. And uh, I think uh, it was not many cases that that came to that point that uh, where the patients then didn't want to have surgery. So, so most of the of the patients uh, had surgery that that was in this stage, let's say. Okay, so that really mirrors the clinical, um, you know, real world situation, which is fantastic and one of the great strengths of this study um, across all all its parts. And so, I'll just see if Stefan wants to add anything on. Well, I might add to, to what Richard and Harold said uh, in, in, in uh, sort of uh, reminiscing back to several years when we, when we were planning the study and we really had long and detailed and, and quite difficult discussions on how would we actually be able to define a, an a priori uh, failure criterion for a patient because we realized that this was going to happen uh, whatever we did in the trial and that defining this a priori and then following that uh, that uh, criterion in the study would be a critical issue and uh, I think we did pretty well I'm sure that uh, it could have done in, in different ways but the thing we the the decision and criterion we we arrived at uh, worked pretty well within the study. Yeah, no, that's great. So I, I really appreciate that challenge. So um, could I add one thing too? Yeah, thanks for jumping in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because actually we were very interested in why patients choose uh, surgery. So actually, uh, we did a spin-off study on these patients, on a qualitative study where they were interviewed. And that was actually published in BMC Muscle Disorders last year in 2009. So if anyone is more interested, um, there is a qualitative report of the patient's um, views on uh, why they choose yeah, brilliant. surgery. Let's follow that up, Eva. Just uh, take your time to sort of direct a reader with an author name or a year to help them find that yeah, and uh, yeah. just tell us the main findings. Yeah. The first author of that paper, uh, the last name is Thorstenson, TH, and it is in BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders in 2009, and that is an open access um, journal. So the objective of that qualitative study was really to understand the patient's views of treatment after ACL injury and their reasons for deciding to request surgery despite consenting to participate in a randomized controlled trial. So 34 of these patients were interviewed uh, either before uh, randomization or before surgery or after surgery. And what we found was that there was a strong preference for surgery in uh, these patients. And um, patients who choose to cross over described training as time-consuming, boring, and unable to provide sufficient results within a reasonable time frame. And some said that their injured need had, had given way and others experienced new knee traumas, and many described their lack of trust in their knee. 
and patients believed that surgery would provide joint stability. But although they were very satisfied with um, surgery, uh, if you looked into that, you found that they were not really improved after surgery, but they were pleased that they had had the surgery. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting, this whole concept of uh, you know, patient-rated outcomes against sort of objective outcomes, and obviously uh, you've contributed to that field with the, the COOS uh, outcome study. Now, thanks for alerting us to that. Um, did uh, any of the others want to comment on that study before we move on? I would, I would as a surgeon, <laughs> actually want to, to comment and to say that the results of this qualitative study, which uh, was a new area for me to venture into, and, uh, were really an eye-opener and very, very interesting in trying to understand what goes on sort of behind, uh, behind the, the uh, uh, CRFs in this randomized control trial. Yeah, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And did you want to um, just expand on that, Stefan? Well, in the sense that uh, when you analyze the spreadsheets, so to say, you uh, you get one one view of what's going on, but uh, then when you listen to and uh, read these discussions uh, that uh, the interviewer had with uh, with the patients and. Uh, uh, how they were thinking and uh, what they uh, what decisions they made, etc., was very very interesting and, and uh, quite a learning experience, I would say. Yeah, and what was the main surprise for you? You know, what what sort of differed from what you thought from the spreadsheets? Well, my preconceived notion was that yes, patients would largely, or these kinds of patients that we were recruiting, which were largely soccer, young soccer players, and uh, which can correct me there if, if, I, if I'm if I'm deviating from the truth, but I think that's largely it, uh, the, the, was that these individuals would be biased towards surgery, both from uh, what they might have read in, in the press and from talking to their uh, possibly previously injured team uh, uh, mates and from the trainers, etc. And uh, yes, this uh, came out as, as true, I think, uh, being confirmed. But uh, what was also interesting was to better understand uh, how the patients, as Eva was pointing out, actually uh, were quite comfortable entering the trial uh, while reasoning that, well, I can always enter the trial, and if I if I'm not happy with my the results of lottery of the randomization, I can always uh, bail out and have my surgery if I need it, and maybe this is a smart move on my part, so to say. Yeah. So understanding why patients uh, accept uh, accepted to at least enter this particular trial uh, has certainly improved on my part. Great. Yeah. No. I, I'm great. I'm glad we got to that. And qualitative research is is welcome at BJSM. Um, so I fully. I'm glad that came up. Um, I want to hit some clinical scenarios here. Um, they want to be very clinically relevant. So I'm going to just paint um, a couple clinical pictures and ask um, individuals to begin the commentary. So uh, first one's a 26-year-old. So in the study, you know, you, you had the 26-year-old average in the soccer players. So let's just stick exactly with that. 
and uh, start with Richard and saying, when you get a 26-year-old um, soccer player, someone who's reflective of, of who you studied, and they come to you now after they made after they've injured their knee and you diagnose an ACL rupture, um, what do you suggest they do? How should that be managed if they want to be active in sport? Well, uh, of course, there is the individual part uh, where you have to know about the associated injuries to the knee. Uh, but if we if we say, and I assume you uh, you mean that this is a typical ACL injury and not uh, very large associated uh, injuries to the knee. Uh, so, uh, based on our findings, I would suggest that patient to start off with an extensive rehabilitation program uh, supervised by experienced physiotherapists and come back after two, three months on a clinical visit to see uh, how everything is going. And if uh, there is any problem with the knee, uh, if there is instability or... Uh, so I think the, the extra clinical visit is important. Okay. And if things go well, and they ask you, you know, when will I get back to playing soccer? What do you tell them, Richard? Uh, I, I tell them, I try to be frank and say, I don't know. <laughs> because we don't know. Uh, uh, hopefully, I, I, I usually tell these patients that you could be back at playing soccer within six months and it could take one and a half year. And, and it's not only dependent on how you perform your rehabilitation, it's also dependent on other issues like your stability and your need uh, of stability and how you could trust your knee in diff different situations. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. And uh, I want to bring up the issue of the associated injury. So that was that was the case where it's like pretty much an isolated ACL if we believe in that possibility. Um, who wants to jump in and talk about, uh, so one of the other um, three, about if there's ACL with associated injury and advice to the patient and what a sensible sensible patient should do in that situation? Um, Harold here. Uh, you mean uh, if there is uh, a meniscus tear, for example? Absolutely, or articular. And uh, if there is uh, an extensive meniscus tear that is uh, possible to repair, um, uh, I should still uh, do a repair of that meniscus and also then stabilize the knee with an ACL reconstruction. And uh, that was also what we did in this study. Those patients uh, with uh, large tears of the meniscus that were repairable uh, were uh, excluded. So I, I think that that is not a big problem. If there is uh, other meniscus tears, um, I, um, you can see it, I think, in two different ways. Uh, in the study from Lund before, not this randomized study, but another study of, of from primarily conservatively treated uh, ACL tears, uh, all had arthroscopy from the beginning, and uh, there was uh, meniscus surgery done at that time. The results of that study in the longer perspective and also uh, actually in the shorter perspective uh, was very good, uh, and even uh, and many went back to sports, and there was a low prevalence of osteoarthritis. Uh, so, uh, my my what I've been thinking of is that maybe that's a good option, even if we should not do the primarily reconstructive surgery to do an arthroscopy 
uh, in the beginning to verify the diagnosis. I know we can do that with MRI, but uh, maybe also to be sure to to treat uh, meniscus tears uh, as good as possible. Another option is, of course, uh, to do as we did in this study, do a primary MRI and to uh, diagnose associated injuries and try to uh, to uh, decide from uh, the MRI uh, pictures if we should go, go further with uh, uh, subacute arthroscopy to treat meniscus tears, even if we should not do the the reconstructive procedure. Uh, and uh, the last option is to wait uh, in the rehab situation if they had uh, symptoms and uh, early rehab uh, a period uh, uh, that will be equivalent with a meniscus tear, uh, then maybe go further and and, and uh, maybe do an arthroscopy at that time. I think this is a, uh, this is a big problem, and uh, uh, the, the really solutions are not there. But uh, I think we have learned a lot from this study. Yeah, you just hit on on that key issue. Um, Eva, do you want to? Um Comment or ever uh, or Stefan or Richard, this idea of early arthroscopy versus um, waiting and just doing clinical diagnosis. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe if we start with uh, Eva and then go to Stefan. Well, that's something that we have to look into. I think <clears throat> that's my yeah. that's my only comment on that. Yeah, no data. And Stefan, your thought? Um, you know, you well, my response would be that. Uh, I think it would have been important to confirm the diagnosis uh, early on after uh, an injury and uh, based on the clinical, a strong clinical suspicion of an ACL injury. I think it's important to confirm the diagnosis either by arthroscopy or by an MRI. If you're doing an arthroscopy, uh, you certainly might consider doing uh, meniscus repair uh, suggested by Harold. However, I might point out that uh, meniscus repairs are in a similar situation as um, ACL reconstructions in the sense that uh, it's not really been proven in randomized trials, although it would be a perfect uh, target for a randomized trial that uh, meniscus repair actually prevents uh, future away or for that matter improves uh, short time uh, outcome. But of course, uh, being a surgeon, I would still, and, and having worked with uh, meniscus problems uh, from the research point of view for many years, I would certainly be very intrigued and I'd be delighted if, uh, if there was a trial that showed that uh, meniscus repair could actually accomplish uh, an improved outcome. Can I come in there, Harold? Absolutely, Harold. Uh, I think uh, Stefan is, uh, is quite right here, but uh, as long as we don't know uh, the benefits of, uh, of meniscus repair. Uh, I think as an orthopedic surgeon that it is uh, very difficult uh, to to just uh, resect uh, the, the entire meniscus or maybe 80% of the meniscus that you have to do if it is a, an extensive longitudinal tear. So as long as uh, we don't know that, I, I think... Uh, I think yeah, we have to to do repairs, but uh, I'm also looking forward to uh, to good studies on this. So we we have yeah, we should certainly result. all uh, try to preserve as much meniscus tissue as possible. Yes. 
Yeah, so realistically, that study's probably not going to get done, don't you think? Because it'd be hard to get patients to agree to be in the uh, meningectomy arm. Yes. Well, we uh, succeeded with the uh, with the ACL. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So did you hear? You haven't given up on that study being possible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to check um, the nice paper you've referred to a couple of times about you know long-term outcome after not having reconstruction. That's the one by Costa Giannis, is the first author, Harold? Yes, uh, we have uh, actually a couple of papers or, or several papers from, from that uh, group of patients. And the Costa Giannis uh, paper is about uh, the uh, short-term outcome and also about uh, predictors and uh, the importance of a, a pivot shift and so on. But uh, the long-term outcome is the paper by Paul Neumann uh, presented, uh, I think it was uh, 2008. Okay. So, and, uh, well, the study that Harold is referring to uh, is a, is a very well designed uh, observational study, which actually I think is is among those studies that have shown the lowest rate of uh, osteoarthritis development. Uh, uh, in the longer perspective, among the very large number of studies which show a great variation in the in the amount of OA developing, and uh, I think it's important to show, as Soil points out, that it is actually possible, with among other things, uh, activity uh, modification, perhaps uh, in these injured individuals, that um, you can actually bring down the uh, the uh, rate of OA development, at least based on these observational studies. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. Uh, so why don't we, we you know, talk about the OA issue and then just come back to a couple of clinical scenarios to finish. So um, we've probably about 10 or 15 minutes to go here, but I just want to make sure the listeners can find um, the paper. And I know that Costigianis is spelled K-O-S-T-O-G-I-A-N-N-I-S. And Harold Roos um, is on that paper as well. So that's one starting place. But uh, Harold, why don't you direct us to uh, any, if I've missed something or another paper? Um, no, I think no, that's that's good. Yeah, and you'll find. And then I think we should add too that what is also interesting with that cohort is that there is another paper where the first author is Augerberg, and what she showed is that they don't only have a low. A prevalence of osteoarthritis, as in the Neumann paper, but they also have a very good uh, functional outcome and they have very good muscle function, which is very rare 15 years after um, after the um, care. So, Eva, what's the difference in, this, in the treatment of these patients from the sort of uh, general run-of-the-mill studies? I would say that uh, what is common for the patients in both these uh, in, in our trial and in that cohort is that uh, they have been subjected to neuromuscular training, and which is uh, common in Scandinavia and has been so for a long time, and it is gaining, um, gaining also uh, in the States, but in the States that's, it has been more common previously with uh, more uh, open kinetic chain exercises or uh, not so much functional exercise and there has been more of a focus on strength training but these patients have had a focus on neuromuscular functional training yeah no, that's great um, really good to get to that topic um, so the Agerberg is A-G-E-B-E-R-G 
Uh, yeah. I know it's great for people to be able to follow up on this. Um, but let's talk about those differences between um, Scandinavia and, say, the US as one example. I mean, there are you know, country differences, and one of the great things about BJSM is we are international and we have reach to different countries. So, Eva, why don't you just sort of expand on what you'd say is the biggest differences in management of conservative management of ACL between you know what you think um, are in the in the two countries, um, yeah. Scandinavia. Or, you know, what's the world best practice, and maybe what do you see happening because in the US? Because I know you travel there a lot. Uh, I, I would then like to start in the mid '80s when I first studied this subject in, in both Scandinavia and in the US, and then there was a huge difference in how you treated these patients because. Um, being educated in Scandinavia and in Lund especially, I was used to this kind of neuromuscular exercise where you have a great focus on postural control and how you uh, weight bear and how you load on your leg and that is really crucial. But when I came to the stage, States, there was a huge focus on quadricep strength and there was a lot of uh, exercises doing just quad raises and um, there was not so much focus on how these patients were functioning. So that was in the mid-80s. And what then has happened over time is that um, in the U.S. it has become a lot more common with neuromuscular exercise. And I would say that uh, that has gained um, in all the major centers where they uh, treat these patients nowadays. And in a recent... Uh, review by Mayona Riesberg from Norway. Uh, they actually did a literature review where they compared strength training alone and neuromuscular exercise and found that neuromuscular exercise was more beneficial for patients with an ACL tear. So I think um, uh, this is what has, that, that's come to stay. And that is now, I would say, the prevailing way of treating these patients all over the world. But I really want to emphasize that this is really, it's really, really important. Exercise can be a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for that. And uh, Richard, do you want to add to comments about exercise? No, um, I think Eva, Eva covered it okay. nicely. Okay. So just before we finish, I wanted to... Um, Talk about the elite athlete, because um, obviously the paper specifically says you weren't focused on that, but we'd love to hear your opinions. And I'd like to talk about the older person who ruptures their ACL. So two quick clinical scenarios. The elite athlete, um, world's most famous soccer player, comes in and uh, wants to be treated by your by the Canon team, the abbreviation for your study, K-A-N-O-N. Um, what do you suggest, um, Richard? Perhaps you start with that. Did, did you say the world's most famous soccer player? Yeah, I didn't specify who it was for obvious reasons. <laughs> well, then I think that he's probably playing in Barcelona or somewhere and having a <laughs> salary of a, a weekly salary compared to my yearly salary, salary or something. So he I guess there's, there's a lot of money involved as well. And I think that Barcelona would like him to be back on the field as soon as possible. And if if he's not back in the field, I guess they would love to stop paying his salary. So, I think our our study excluded this this type of of um, athletes, and I think uh, we did that because they are in a separate world and they should be treated uh, according to uh, 
I mean, there is so so many issues around these people with money, with contracts, uh, and and things like that. So I I wouldn't apply our results to the treatment of of uh, any famous or national international leading soccer player. Yeah, and so the implication is early surgery. So will I ask the hard question then? Uh, are these players going to be um, well? Two questions. One, what time frame do you think is reasonable for them? to get back. So you've got this player and he says, when can I get back? Um, we'll just run around the table and say, you know, what you say to them. So, um, Richard, what do you say to that player about when can I get back to playing for my Premier League team? Um, when he can go back to play, I think there there's a lot of cases going back already after three months. And it's probably possible to go back after three months. But if it's good to go back so early, I don't think so. I also think that six months is probably too short time, uh, especially if you consider the the risk of osteoarthritis. There there are no papers on this issue, uh, and so this is only speculations. But I, uh, in my thesis, I I wrote that probably a year uh, is what you should wait before you go back to strenuous uh, activities. Yeah, and I'll just jump around. Uh, short answers, uh, Eva. I can nothing but agree with Richard because this is really an ethical uh, uh, dilemma because I really agree with Richard that the structures really would need to take some more time prior to being loaded in strenuous situations again. But as we said, uh, there are lots of complications with uh, money. And so, and, and these patients too, they're not concerned about what's going to happen when they're middle-aged or when, once their soccer career is over. Yeah, it's a great debate. It leads us into the generic issue. So, uh, Harold, a quick answer on that question. Uh, about the same. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think there are, the, the medical part of it is that I uh, I think there are some indications or, or there are some results in, uh, from different studies that it is uh, not good at all for the the articular cartilage to go back uh, to to strenuous uh, sports activities before maybe a year. Uh, but uh, I think it's uh, at this time uh, very, very difficult to to uh, to, to to get those uh, high athlete people to to accept this and to the dementias and so on. Yeah. So, uh, so strictly medically, I think we should wait. Yeah. And uh, so, Stefan, it leads nicely into your expertise as one of the world leaders on yeah. OA and exercise. Um, well, what do you think? The answer to your question is basically this is why I'm not a team doctor. <laughs> I know too much about uh, what's good and not not good for the joint after these injuries. And I would be, I would certainly agree with uh, everything that's been said that going back before six months, I think, is from a medical point of view uh, contraindicated, uh, and, and perhaps even waiting a year would be advisable. Uh, and also, uh, also emphasizing uh, what's been said that uh, activity modification after the in injuries is probably good for the joint, uh, but it may not be good for the career. So that's up to the individual to choose. And I would perhaps uh, sort of continue on on this uh, on this line to point out that uh, uh, this two-year report from a study that we published uh, that. Uh, is still ongoing actually and we have long-term uh, goals for the study in uh, looking at the development of osteoarthritis uh, over time and I think that uh, perhaps by five years we can start uh, looking seriously 
but even more uh, at longer times, seven, eight, uh, ten years, is probably realistic to uh, wait until we have a reasonably final answer as to, from the OI point of view, uh, what, which is the, the best way of treating these patients. Yeah, yeah, no, brilliant, and we look forward to those, uh, those, you know, five-year and longer data, and you do a great job of retaining people in those studies, and um, it's a credit to your group, as I mentioned in my warm-up in the September um, BJSM. So uh, interesting there, very hot point you made that uh, 12 months, you know, is really as early as they should be going back. So a lot of issues for team doctors and players and managers to deal with. So uh, thanks for making those points. So the last patient we've got is, um, you know, a 49-year-old recreational person who ruptures their ACL skiing unusually and uh, they're not a high demand person. Um, Eva, if we start with you, is your study, is that that's outside the age group for your study, but um, do you think you've added weight to management for that patient? Well, that's about me. So I would definitely suggest uh, rehab and exercise only okay. for that patient. Yeah. And any anyone, any disagreement there around the table? No, uh, 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 sorry. Uh, I think uh, uh, that's of course uh, to start with. But even if the patient is 49, if there are subjective uh, instability in that patient after a period of rehabilitation of uh, three to five months or whatever, uh, you should not be uh, afraid of uh, of of doing surgery, even if the age is higher. Right. I think that's important to add. Absolutely. That's no, fantastic. Thank you. So I think we've uh, sort of covered a lot of the key issues that I think listeners are going to be interested in. We could keep you guys all night um, as it is where you are. But uh, I just want to finish by giving you a chance. You know, you've had some thoughts and thoughts have come to mind. And if you want to make a couple of points, um, feel free. So if we just go in the author order again. Uh, Richard, are there any closing points you wanted to make? Something that we haven't covered? An interesting thought is that in the mid-80s, I think, uh, Frank Noyce published the rule of thirds. Uh, and according to our results, the rule of thirds might actually work still in the 2010. Uh, the rule of thirds being that one-third of the ACL injured patients will do fine without reconstruction. One-third will do fine but adapt their activity level and one-third might then need surgery. So so just to put our findings into a more, uh, uh, into a perspective, I think the rule of thirds is, uh, is good. <laughs> yeah, good for Frank Noyes and yeah, good for you guys for um, giving credit and reflecting your knowledge of literature there. Um, Richard, um, thanks for that. And uh, Eva, thoughts? Yeah, I think my final comment would be to comment a bit about the outcomes because as everyone knows or understands if you uh, have deal with these patients, um, the aim of reconstructing these patients is really to obtain um, a mechanical stability of the knee joint and that is obviously not achieved if you don't have uh, reconstruction. Okay. It cannot be achieved without reconstruction. Uh, but uh, what is interesting is that we can see that the patients do similarly, uh, although uh, their mechanical stability is very different. And I think that is very, very important to understand that um, functional stability and mechanical stability is not necessarily um, correlated. 
Thank you. And um, Harold? I've got two points. One point is that uh, I think it's important to, to realize that the really bad, the patients that are doing really bad uh, in, in this study, those are in the, in the uh, surgical treated group. And uh, uh, that's that's why I think it's it's important with this this approach. If you have done the surgery already, it's very hard to convert. But if the patients will not do fine after the rehab uh, strategy, you can convert. And uh, I think that's important to know. Uh, the other thing is that me as a team doctor, as, uh, if I can go on with that, uh, Stefan talked about, I think it's important for me to have this knowledge now by this study and when I discuss even with the, the high, uh, with the, the soccer players and the, and the top level players in, in Sweden and, and to have a discussion and, and they have the opportunity to, to take their own decision about going on with their career knowing that it might cause them harm in the future and so on. I, I think I think that's a good thing for me. Stephen? Well, I'd like to add something different in pointing out that this, uh, this was and is an investigator-initiated trial. Uh, this was not a sponsor-initiated trial. Uh, I, uh, I think that's an important statement uh, from many points of view. Uh, the uh, the other point I'd like to make is that uh, uh, this is only one trial. It is a limited number of patients. After all, it's not a 30,000 patient uh, clinical trial as uh, they do in the drug industry these days. So we certainly encourage traditional trials uh, along these or along civil lines to be to be done. And I think one important. Uh, answer from this study is that yes, it is actually ethical to do this kind of study because there is one study done that shows a, a similar outcome of these two treatment arms. So we do encourage uh, additional studies in this area in uh, confirming or refuting our results. Now, before we wrap this up, we should uh, talk about generalizability. And um, Richard, why don't I get you to open up on that, and we'll ask others to jump in. Uh, yeah, well, generalizability is always uh, difficult because you really don't know until afterwards if your if your uh, your results are generalizable or not. Uh, in our study, we actually compared the findings uh, of the primary outcome and of the secondary outcomes such as return to sports, to uh, a number of large trials of ACL reconstructions. And uh, we found that our results were, were comparable to the ones reported in other trials. So, uh, And this is, of course, good because this means that the patients in the surgical group of our study, and also the non-surgical group, of course, uh, are performing as good as patients in other large reports. Yeah, that is exciting. And Stefan, did you want to comment further? Yeah, and I could add to what Richard said. They also perform very similarly to uh, patients that are being reported into the uh, Scandinavian uh, ACL repair or ACL reconstruction uh, registry, nationwide registry with uh, now many, many thousand uh, patients being registered and reporting. And uh, the important uh, aspect of that comment is that the registry, of course, takes all comers. 
all patients being reconstructed, not just the selected group uh, that we were studying. Uh, NARCT, of course, uh, however much you argue about the, the generalizability, is always only a slice of reality, as I think we all recognize. Uh, but at least uh, as far as we can tell, uh, within the study group that we have looked, uh, and, and that this is a uh, big group of, of uh, young individuals uh, having these injuries, our results are generalizable. And uh, they also seem quite comparable to sort of you know, what goes on out there in the real world. Yeah, hugely important. And I think that's probably underscored by the New England Journal taking it, right? So, you know, it was a great study, but not generalizable. You know, I think that they'd be much more, much less, much less likely to take it. Um, yeah. So good for you, and I think they've they've picked on up on that ever. I have one thing that I would like to add when it comes to generalizability, and that is uh, the gender issue, because uh, we were not able to address that because we obviously didn't have sufficient power to. Uh, look at men and women separately, but when we uh, look at men and women in the uh, Scandinavian registries, we find that uh, women actually report uh, worse outcomes both prior to and after surgery. And of course, uh, we cannot know if. Um, I think that we need to look into more about the gender differences in ACL tears because we know that ACL injuries they happen. Um, more frequently and at younger ages in women, and it is also a concern if we if they uh, do worse, and we don't really know that yet. Yeah, no, great point, Eva. Thanks. Um, just to wrap it up here, um, it might be good to get a sort of a philosophical note and advice, you know, for researchers and, and sort of a personal finish. Um, Stefan, did you want to have some thoughts uh, about the? you know, what it takes to do a study like this? Well, in my view, uh, two words, uh, passion and patience. And of course, uh, it takes a team effort. And it's great to have the four of you on the call today. And uh, as well, I know Jonas Ranstam played a crucial role, and maybe you could expand on that for our listeners, Stefan. Yes, uh, Jonas is our uh, biostatistician on the team, and. Uh, this really requires a team effort, and his role was uh, quite crucial in uh, helping us uh, uh, set up the uh, study and the uh, statistical analysis plan and uh, help us do the uh, actual analysis and interpreting the results in the, uh, in the proper way so that we could uh, craft the paper in uh, the uh, proper fashion. Thanks, Stefan. Now, that's a critical member of the team. and. A lot of people don't understand why that's the case. Do you want to just expand a little? Well, yes, be happy to. Uh, I think it's important to point out that uh, you actually need your biostatistician uh, who should be experienced in the analysis of clinical trials, and you need him or her, for that matter, early on in the study, in the planning stage, and then you need uh, the assistance, the support of the biostatistician in uh, setting up your analysis plan towards the end of the study 
And finally, you need the uh, support of your uh, biostatistician in uh, doing the analysis and interpreting the results and actually putting it into words. And uh, all of this really is quite critical for for uh, crafting your uh, manuscript uh, in the uh, most proper way. Yeah, and the bottom line is we're trying to get great clinical information that's accurate. So. We just have to interpret our data correctly so that our clinical implications reflect the reality. So thanks a lot for that, Stefan. You've certainly done that. So I'm going to thank your team um, for the excitement of, of getting this information out there. For me as a clinician and colleagues, it's hugely exciting to see this information and uh, I think it's going to make a great difference to our patients. Um, as a BJSM editor, I want to thank you for your help in um, guiding me through my warm-up that I wrote for the September issue of BJSM and uh, thanks for being sports about my idiosyncratic approach to that and uh, making sure that the facts were basically right in my part. Uh, so great to have that in, in BJSM. And uh, personal thanks for taking the time today to join this call and to provide this insight to our listeners. Um, I'm really, really grateful. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.